John Deere to New Holland Just look at the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track. It's episode 10 already. Can you believe it? This week, we'll take a closer look at the recent ag census results with American Farm Bureau economist Veronica Nye. Also, May Mental Health Month, and we'll discuss mental health on the farm with Farm Bureau's Ray Atkinson. We also talk strengthening family farm relationships with Andy Junkin, and we'll take you to the legendary Ernest Tubb record shop for music from country hit maker Marty Brown. You won't want to miss a moment of it. Let's go. Our first guest this week on Fast Line Fast Track is Ray Atkinson, the Director of Strategic Communications for the American Farm Bureau Federation. He's in Washington, D.C., and uh, he's going to talk to us a bit today about a new national poll that's out uh, talking about the impacts of the rural economy on farmer mental health. And it's a huge issue. We've got another guest coming up that's going to discuss this as well. But uh, Ray, thank you for taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track today. Well, thank you for having me, Brent. I appreciate it. So uh, we'd like to accentuate the positives here uh, in the ag industry on the program, but uh, we can't ignore some of the challenges uh, that have been prevalent in the industry uh, over the past uh, months and and years here. And, uh, you know, it's been no secret, and we've chronicled here uh, some of the challenges in terms of uh, farm finances and and the markets and uh, uh, just a whole slew of things that as they can converge uh, in the right way really put uh, a ton of stress on farm families. And uh, you guys have dug into this to uh, uh, be able to better understand just the, the gravity of the situation. Well, absolutely. And you know, that was well said. I mean, we're, um, we're all aware of the, the challenge in the farm economy right now and, and, you know, piled on top of disasters and trade issues and all those things. Um, and we know we've heard anecdotally, and we know of you know of stories that, and it's just really weighing heavily on farmers right now. So we wanted to, as you said, we wanted to better understand uh, what exactly is going on out there. What are the impacts? What are people seeing? What are their treatment? You know, how how are they seeing access to treatment and uh, their source of information? So we really did a deep dive. We had. Morning Consult, which is a national research polling organization, uh, has we've worked with them many times before. You probably saw the the research we did with them on the opioid crisis that uh, three out of four farmers had been uh, dealing with with that that particular issue. And so we we worked with Morning Consult to get a, a better idea of you know, what what specifically is impacting farmers' mental health. And the top three, nobody's surprised, I think, but financial issues. Uh, farmer business problems and fear of losing the farm were the top three things that we heard across the board. And so, yes, that is really uh, troubling because uh, given, you know, the backdrop of the farm economy being what it is right now. 
Mm-hmm. And looking at that, 91% of those surveyed uh, said financial issues were uh, chief concern. Uh, 88% said farm or business problems. And 87% uh, the fear of losing the farm. So you're talking about the overwhelming majority of farmers saying that there is a lingering uh, fear, even in the back of their mind, that uh, uh, that things could go really wrong for them. Yeah, and I think that's a real accurate statement. You know, farmers are used to, I think, dealing with unique and unpredictable circumstances like weather and fluctuations in commodity market prices and things like that. Um, but, I mean, I think we're also in a unique situation now because it's just so many things happening at once, the floods in the Midwest, the storms, you know, everywhere, and um, and trade issues and all those kind of things. And, and I think part of um, you know, uh, another part of that was, so we, we, we gave a list and we said, which of these things, and those, those top three, you know, came to the, those three came to the top, but the other things they talked about were, you know, stress and the weather and the economy, isolation, social stigma. And in this poll, we looked at all those things, you know, and particularly in, in stigma in understanding what's keeping people from either seeking treatment or talking to folks and uh, had some really kind of interesting observations there. Mm-hmm. And what were some of those? Well, so I think um, one of the things that was that really kind of jumped out at us was that a majority of uh, rural Americans said that there's at least some stigma around mental health. But then when we asked, okay, what about, what is the stigma around seeking treatment for mental health? That number was about 20 points lower. Mm-hmm. So that tells us there that's a, that's a significant uh, that's a significant data point I think because that people are understanding that you know or that there's actually less stigma around seeking treatment for mental health. So that means that that people are realizing the scope of this problem and and um, and realizing that there you have to you know there's things that you need to do. Um, and, and again, too, the, one of our top findings was that 91% of rural adults said that mental health is important to them or to their family, and 82% of farmers and farm workers said the same thing. So that's a really, I think, you know, it can be uh, looking at this kind of an issue, it can be kind of a, a bleak subject. But seeing those numbers, that's really encouraging because that tells us that people understand um, the importance and, um, and, and understand, you know, the stigma around it and want to uh, reduce that stigma. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you brought that number up because that's one that really jumped off the page at me. And I did find that a little bit surprising from the standpoint that uh, dealing with farmers like, like we do, and I know that you do, uh, farmers tend to bottle things up and, uh, they, you know, kind of uh, have a lot of pride in what they do and, and don't always like to ask for help. So the fact that uh, almost all of them are saying that uh, the, the mental health is important to them is encouraging. And it shows that uh, that the door is open to to begin to talk about those issues, and uh, for people who find themselves struggling to to maybe go and seek the help that they need to make sure that this doesn't become a bigger problem. Yes, absolutely, and and I think um, you know uh, when you you're right, farmers are self reliant. They are um, very. Um, you know, independent, self-reliant, and and I think, and it just kind of occurred to me, looking at these numbers here, looking at some of these polling numbers, uh, that that many people said mental health is important to them, even given the amount of stigma that we know is associated with this. You know, I would have 
I would have predicted that that number would be a lot lower because of the stigma, and people acknowledge the stigma. But even with even with the level of stigma that we know is around mental health in general, um, particularly in rural areas and with farmers, um, that number was huge. So I think that's a big. Um, uh, I think that's a really encouraging point, and I think it, uh, like you said, it gives us um, kind of some hope to working with this issue and, and to try and uh, to help. And another point in there that that I think is related is uh, we saw that 80% of rural adults said they'd be comfortable talking with a friend or family member who's dealing with stress or mental health condition. That's overwhelming. That's, that's a huge number. The number was. 13 points lower for farmers and farm workers. It was 67%, but still, it's you know two thirds of people in in uh, farmers and farm workers said that they would be comfortable talking with uh, with someone. But certainly points to I think um, people's understanding of the need for um, for being there for people and, and and helping each other through this. Uh, you know, all these stressful times we're having. Now, with that said, though, uh, looking at the numbers a little closer, only 31% who, who uh, were respondents said that they had uh, e- either personally sought care or 24% uh, had a family member who, who had sought care. So there's still some work there from, uh, you know, talking about it to actually taking uh, initiative to, to going to see someone. I understand that part of uh, the next step for American Farm Bureau passed this is advocating for programs that will provide uh, farmers and ranchers with that uh, mental health avenue uh, via, via resources and uh, that uh, that you guys have a plan in place to talk to Congress about how to take those next steps. Yes, absolutely. I mean, two things there. Uh, and I'll start with the, the second part of Congress, you know, so in the 2018 Farm Bill, there was $10 million that was, um, uh, I guess, allocated for, uh, I'm not sure that's the technically correct word, but there's uh, $10 million that's uh, funded for the Farm and, Strance, uh, Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network, um, who are authorized as the word, I'm sorry. And so we are pushing now for that money to be um, to be appropriated to help with some of these programs. Um and we're also, another thing that we're doing really at this point, we're using our deep network. As you know, we have, um, you know, 2,800 county farm bureaus and 50 state farm bureaus plus Puerto Rico. We're reaching out to those um, to those farm bureaus and trying to find out what all the different programs are within the states and counties uh, at the, you know, local and state level that can help people and then making those resources available. That's a a real similar approach to what we did with um, our Farm Town Strong campaign about the, which continues today about the um, opioid crisis in rural America, is uh, we found going into it, it's almost overwhelming the amount of, of resources and different agencies, state, local, federal agencies that are working on these kind of issues, and it's just helping to you know trying to find the most relevant resources, and and then making those easily available to people so they can find them, 
you know, without being overwhelmed with the amount of information that's out there. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's important because another point that uh, that, that you guys make in your materials here is that uh, farmers and farm workers are less likely than other rural adults who are respondents uh, who said that they would be confident to be able to spot the warning signs of, of mental health condition. Only 55% of uh, farmers and farm workers said they could uh, pinpoint uh, somebody going through those uh, uh, struggles versus 73% of the uh, general rural population. So in addition to helping seek treatment, there, there needs to be some education there, it seems, to help uh, uh, people on the farm be able to spot when somebody is going through those struggles. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of different um Well, that is, obviously, there's a need for for training and education there that people aren't as confident uh, that they can spot those signs. And the signs that, you know, CDC's got some good information out there, um, and it's kind of some simple things that you would expect, like feeling isolated, increased anxiety, uh, expressing hopelessness, things like that. And so uh, people actually may know what they are and not know specifically uh, how to state what they are, but I do think that you know it is important that um, you know that gives a, a place to start with really looking at making these resources available and 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 what is there. So we know, for instance, Tennessee um, has a farmer task force for uh, for this issue. We have um, Minnesota Department of Agriculture has hotlines. Uh, and all kinds of programs and training. And so there's all these things out there. We're just sort of, at this point, trying to really uh, wrap our heads around what all is available out there and the best way to point people to resources. Mm-hmm. So if people want to delve more into this, uh, uh, where can they go to, to get that information? So the quickest way to get there to find it would be to go to fb.org slash latest. And you see there our most current um pieces, uh, you know, our, our most current communications, and its uh, headline is New National Poll Shows Impacts of Rural Economy on Farmer Mental Health, and then we'll take you to a, a news release that we issued on Wednesday, uh, uh, and I should mention, too, uh, to uh, coincide with uh, May as National um, Mental Health Month, um, and there's also links in that news release to uh, a slide presentation that has just a really deep dive into this data that I hope people will find helpful. Well, this is really, really critical stuff. And Ray Atkinson, I really appreciate you taking the time to to break this down for us on Fast Line Fast Track. And we want to stay in touch with you. And uh, and by all means, uh, as this progresses, uh, please keep us posted and uh, and let us know how we can get the word out there. Absolutely, Brent. Well, we sure appreciate your giving us uh, this opportunity to uh, to get the word out to folks and to help um, raise the kind of the profile of this really important issue. And that's Ray Atkinson, the Director of Strategic Communications for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Back on Fast Line Fast Track, we've got a special guest here. It's Andy Junkin, who bills himself as a specialist in the decision culture of agriculture. He's the chairman of Solon, Iowa-based Agriculture Strategy. He has a new book out, Tough Times Never Last, Tough Farm Families Do, Bulletproof Your Farm Against Anything. Andy, welcome to Fast Line Fast Track. 
How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. We appreciate you coming on the program to talk about some really important stuff here. You know, your passion is for helping farm families navigate some of the communication problems and dysfunctional decision making that holds them back and prevents them from realizing their farm's full potential and uh, uh, likely the full profit. So uh, before we get going here, I want to talk a bit about your agricultural background. Well, I'm just a seventh generation farm boy. And uh, the day I left for agriculture college, my mother, she showed me the farm financials, and, and she says to me, if you don't fix these numbers, I'm leaving your father. Uh, we were beef producers uh, back in the early 90s, and what had happened to the beef industry uh, from the 70s uh, was that we were in a new price cycle, and our cost of production was a $1.20 20 a pound of beef, and we were getting paid 83 cents. My parents' arguments daily uh, was, my dad said, the price is going to rise any day, and I fear... You know, that, that is being said by a lot of farmers and their wives right now across the Midwest. And um, basically, I went off to agriculture college to save the family farm. And uh, when I was there, I did a course one-on-one with a university professor, and he taught me how to write a business plan. And I spent eight months, all my spare time, uh, putting together a 200-page business plan. I couldn't wait to give it to my dad. And uh, I gave it to him, and he looked at the, the cover, and then he opened the firebox, and he threw it straight in the fire. And after that, I wrote 18 completely different business plans. I thought it was I, I was making mistakes. And by the time I graduated from college, I had five Tupperware containers stacked to the ceiling uh, full of data and research backing every assumption of my business plans. And yet none of these plans got read. And so I was getting really frustrated by Christmas. We had a big fight um, the, grad, uh, the Christmas of my graduating year. And my Uncle Claude said, stepped in, and he says, well, why don't you uh, – Give the boy the field behind the barn, and he can try out his ideas there. And so that's what we went and did. And Malcolm Claude, he uh, walked the field with me on his birthday in August, and he was really impressed with what he'd seen. And he walked into the house. My dad was washing his hands by the weight uh, with a water basin. And he slaps my dad on the back. He says, you know, your boy's going to make more money off of an acre than you're going to make off the entire farm this year. And Claude just laughed. He thought it was a big joke. And... Uh, my dad, he didn't think it was a joke at all. And a couple of days later, you wouldn't believe this, um, but my dad, he plowed my crops under. And nobody in the county could understand why. And I spent a long time wondering, why would a man be so abrasive to change when he was about to lose the farm and about to lose the family? And it comes down to this. It's uh, when young lads come home from agriculture college, um, they got tons of ideas as to how to improve the operation. And I seen with my friends who graduated from college at the same time as I was, most of their parents, they bent over backwards trying to um, take their kids' ideas and make them work. But at some point in time, these suggestions for change are perceived as a criticism of, of past management decisions. And at some point in the time period of, of when the kid comes home from college to the time he t- turns 35, 40, you know, er- these suggestions for change are perceived as criticisms of what dad's done. Soon dad starts to push back on these new ideas. And he may or may not know that he's doing this. But if the son says black, this dad will say white, uh, just because he's defensive of his turf. And soon when the son has his or her, uh, the, the daughter has her ideas shut down. You know, when dad says black, she says white because she didn't like the fact that her, her parents wouldn't listen to her idea. And soon we get into this contest on the farm as to who's, who's right. And it becomes more an infatuation with being right than things actually being right. 
Mm-hmm. And as a result, everything falls apart and everything's wrong. And the mistake that I made on my farm was I went home with a Tupperware containers full of information and ideas. And I told my dad what to do. And the word what was the wrong word. I should have focused on why and how. And the why was the fact that we were getting paid 83 cents of the market, and our cost of production was $1.20. My dad thought that the government was going to come through with new subsidies, and he thought the market was going to rise any time. He listened to these wild economic theories. But, you know, what I needed to do was the first thing I needed to do was focus my dad on a different why. You know, that we had to get our cost production down to 82 cents or less. And nobody cared if we were farming or not. And uh, I failed to do this, and, and soon we, we, we lost the farm as a result of our cost production being just too high. But I think for the Midwest, the solution is, is pretty simple. If we um, get an audacious target to drop our cost production below what we predict the market lows will be, and if you get everybody on your farm driven towards that single number, it might seem impossible, but the next step is after you figure out the why and got everybody unified by that common why, you got to get a how. And the how for us wasn't me coming home with this Tupperware containers full of ideas and tell my dad what to do. The how should have been my dad and I and my uncle and whoever else was involved in your farming operation needs to sit down once a week and brainstorm ideas as to how to improve the operation. You see, if I had listened to my my dad's ideas, he would have been more open to listen to my ideas. But I failed to do this, and so... We failed as a family and failed as a farm. And uh, what I've been doing ever since is turning uh, the most dire situations around. Um, the last 12 years, this has all I've been doing, um, not by telling farmers what to do, but just simply improving how they make decisions together. And that's what this, this book I've written is all about. So, Andy, everyone's been talking about the farm crisis, but what's the one thing that folks haven't been talking about that they need to consider? Um, I think the back in the 80s, um, most farms were sole proprietorship operations, and if a farmer got bad news from the bank, he didn't need to talk to anybody. He could just go plow for a week and uh, not talk to anybody, and then in an afternoon go see several people in town and make several decisions and turn around the farm. But the problem we have now is that the demographics of farming have changed in a way we've never really thought about. The fact is that uh, modern health sciences are a game changer. A lot of farmers are getting hip surgeries and other life-prolonging um, pr- changes to their bodies. And instead of retiring at the age of 60 and passing the torch, you know, farmers are farming into their 80s or 90s. And I think that's fantastic. If you want to farm till the day you die, I'm all about making that happen. But the problem we have is we got three generations farming together, not just one generation farming at a time. And because this equipment and this land is so expensive, quite often we've got three cousins or three siblings farming together as well because it doesn't make sense every 20 years to break off capital and uh, to lose your economies of scale. And so on most family farms, instead of there being one farmer who acts as a dictator, we've got a situation where we've got multiple dictators and we have a power struggle going on. Most family farms, we have a problem at a subtle level that there's just too many chiefs and not enough Indians. And everybody's butting heads and pulling the farm in different directions, and we're just getting nowhere fast. And the problem we have in our farm crisis that's coming up is I'm seeing witnessing this in, in the dairy industry. I mean, the dairy industry, as we all know, has been their cost production has been significantly higher than what they've been getting paid for the last uh, three years, if not longer. You know, I see a lot of farm families that are calling me 
just basically they've already listed the farm as, as an option and just hoping for a miracle. And the problem we see is that they've had three, four partners that they've never once sat down for a family business meeting to figure out a way to squeeze out cost production. And they've been hemorrhaging cash. A lot of these farms, their, their cost production is 20, 20, 25% higher than what they're getting paid. It's very similar to my, uh, my family back in the early 90s. And, you know, the simple solution is that these families need to sit down and communicate. Uh, we as farm families suck at making decisions together. I'll say that again because this is key. We as farm families, we suck at making decisions together as a family. And what we've got to do is just evolve that. So instead of everybody pushing their ideas and bullying their ideas and telling folks what to do, we need to start listening to each other and we need to get really good at brainstorming and need to get really good at making decisions. Because half the decisions that should be getting made these days are not getting made. And as a result, money slipping between the cracks. So if we can increase the amount of decisions that should be made and actually get them made and made well together as a group, instead of just one person calling the shots, we can turn around a lot of farms as far as dropping their cost of production wildly. And if people want more food for thought or want some actionable things to do, you recently wrote this book, Tough Times Never Last, Tough Farm Families Do. And in the book, you take a common sense approach to setting goals, tough goals, really, uh, problem solving, communication, work-life balance, motivation, and even self-reflection. And then uh, for folks listening out there, be warned, there's homework. And that's a great thing about this book. You have worksheets, accountability reviews, and skills schedules uh, that help you put into practice some of the principles uh, that you learned. So uh, w- what was the impetus for writing the book? I had to take a gun off a farm where a guy was suicidal. I said, this this has got to stop. And uh, I'm just tired of people calling me after it's too late. And, you know, it's easier uh, to turn around a farm before they've been hemorrhaging cash for three, four years. And I, you know, I hope corn prices go back up to $7 tomorrow. But what happens if they don't? Uh, what happens if uh, this is as good as it gets and, and things get worse? And my argument is very simple. I mean, if you improve how your family makes decisions together, and you do two things, you improve, um, you drive your cost production down, and so you're able, able to make more money, and you eliminate all that BS of farming with family, and eliminate all that frustrations you have working with family, and farming becomes fun again. If the price of corn goes back up to $7, then you're only going to be making more money. But I fear, you know, what happens if if prices continue to go down? And I think we have to be proactive. And so I wrote this book uh, with the hope that farm families just simply listen to the book or read the book if they want to and um, just rethink what they're doing. And so I'm giving this book away. You know, I sold several thousand copies this, this past winter. But my goal is to get it, this audio book into every every cab of every tractor this spring. So it's for free on fastline.com. It's actually just below this podcast, I believe, on the web the main page of the website. Or you can go to my website, agriculturestrategy.com, and you can get a free copy of it. And it's for 99 cents, I think, on iTunes. But the main purpose of this book is to make you rethink things. And so I encourage you, you know, when you're falling asleep at the wheel, not that it ever happens when you're playing corn, um, but if you need something to listen to, I just suggest go download this now, and it's free. And the only thing I ask of you is if you like it, just share it with your friends, uh, email it to your friends or share it on Facebook or uh, Twitter or what have you. And let's get families thinking differently about how they make decisions together so that we can have different results three, four years down the road. And uh, 
hopefully we don't have a farm crisis, the price will go back up. But if, if they don't go back up, fewer of your friends will be going through turmoil. Well, this is all really impactful stuff here, folks. So if you're listening to this and, and want to delve a little deeper into it, I would encourage you to go to FastLine.com, where we're going to be offering a free digital download of the audiobook version of Andy's new book. Make sure you go get that. So when you're in the tractor or the sprayer this spring, uh, you know, make sure you download FastLine Fast Track and listen to it, but then go off and listen to Andy's book because there is a ton of great food for thought here. And if you're not applying these principles to your farm, you definitely need to be because it's vital stuff for the future of farms. So Andy Junkin, we sure do appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. You take care and God bless. Back on Fast Line, Fast Track, I've got a really special guest with me. It's Veronica Nye, an economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation. And uh, Veronica, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on Fast Line, Fast Track. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. And so uh, we, we've had about a month to digest uh, a, a ton of data here in the uh, 2017 Ag Census. And uh, as we've seen uh, kind of the reports fly and people parse this data here, uh, a lot of interesting finds in it. And uh, uh, one of the things that uh, that we've looked at is uh, large size, large scale farms uh, uh, seem to be getting larger. And the, the group of uh, the smallest farms uh either hobby farmers or, or just small uh, commercial farms getting larger. But uh, uh, this whole middle ground uh, r- really showing what, what continues to be uh, uh, consolidation, uh, w- which has happened over a period of time. Uh, now that you've had a chance to look at those numbers, uh, w- what are you seeing? or w- What is your feeling on that? Well, as you said, there's no doubt that we're continuing to see uh, a large number of those small farms, um, and these are farms between one and nine acres, so the, the smallest smallest folks. Um, and, you know, lots of times that's where we find our entry farmers, um, those, those folks who are, you know, growing fruits and vegetables, um, uh, small livestock operations near commercial uh, centers, near population centers. Uh, so I think that's encouraging to see those numbers uh, increase. And, of course, a, a small uptick in the number of farms that are 2,000 acres or more. Um, and, you know, kind of dependent on your experience with agriculture uh, and your location in the United States, I think a lot of people would maybe be surprised that 2,000 acres are these biggest of the big farms that we're talking about because, you know, I'm from Missouri originally, and, uh, it you know, it doesn't take very long to, if you're going to have a commercial uh, grow crop operation, uh, 2,000 acres, is it, it doesn't take a lot of, uh, you know, time to amass that um, or, you know, f- figure out either ownership or, or rentals or, you know, some combination. So, a uh, small uptick there. Um, and then everybody in between uh, showing some decline in numbers. And, you know, I, I think that there's a, couple, a few interesting things to, to think about in that respect. Um, one is it's probably, um, especially on those, you know, on the livestock side and, and thinking about what's been going on with dairy prices the last few years, uh, part of that is, you know, folks who maybe have um, smaller operations that uh, their kids just don't have any interest in farming or, or you know, milking every day. So, um, you know, you've got that sort of natural uh, decline. Um, it's been well reported that the average age of farmers continues to go up. So, you know, that shouldn't be uh, super um, surprising that we've got, you know, some retirements going on and, and that's leading to, to some of that consolidation. Uh, but 
overall, as we think about what uh, commodity prices have done the last few years and conversely what expenses have, have been doing, um, this consolidation is, isn't super surprising. Um, and I don't think that we should expect it to change anytime soon either. Mm-hmm. And now one of the things that's been pointed out, I've seen in a few reports, is the fact that uh, the uh, grower debt continues to to increase. Now we're at a uh, record $427 billion, which is the highest industry debt-to-income ratio since the mid-1980s. Where do you see all of that headed? Well, you know, that's, um, that's interesting. I think there's a lot of... Fairly new paint out there, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, folks who, who bought uh, machinery uh, back a few years ago when the when the commodity prices were a little bit better, um, and then a, a large chunk of that is on, on the real estate side. Folks who are uh, buying uh, land to, to, to farm. Maybe some of that um, number of folks going from that thousand to nineteen hundred acreage range up to that larger operation of 2,000 or more acres. Um, You know, uh, there's two things that um, to really keep an eye on in in that matter is interest rates uh, and, and of course, um, cash prices for your commodities. Those tend to be what support land prices. And so, you know, we're all looking around and saying, hey, commodity prices aren't aren't good, guys. (laughs) And uh, those those interest rates, uh, we're a little concerned about them. Uh, now, the Fed was was making some noise uh, earlier this year, at the beginning of last year, about maybe uh, raising interest rates. And, you know, there was some concern uh, and, and justified concern about what that might do to land prices and uh, what that, that would do to all that farm debt that's based on uh, all that real estate value. Uh, you know, I think uh, the, the Fed slowed down on those thoughts recently. Um, even though the U.S. economy overall is, is pretty strong, uh, they've backed off their uh, desire to have several uh, rate increases. Uh, so that's the, really the thing that, that we're, we'll stay focused on here is thinking about is that, um, you know, is that debt manageable based on the receipts that we're seeing and on the underlying land values that, that still are out there. Uh, but of course, uh, every every farmer knows that you know it's, and every business person knows it's not just about the asset value. Of course, it's cash flow. So um, that's when we're that's something. Of course, that we're all keeping an eye on now too. Is that um, you know we've got a lot of uh, quote unquote wealthy farmers out there who have uh, assets that are worth quite a bit, but uh, will they be able to uh, continue to pay their bills on a day to day basis? Uh, that's where you know I think. Um, our concern would be that you might see some additional uh, retirements, foreclosures, uh, going out of business sales. So that's really what we'll we'll keep an eye on is that uh, cash flow situation and uh, and really uh, watching those interest rates closely to make sure that we're not uh, seeing any significant deterioration of land values. Mm-hmm. Now, as you say that, and you mentioned earlier, uh, the demographics, in specific, the number of younger producers coming in, uh, the numbers tell us that uh, over 320,000 young producers age 35 or less, and uh, one in four producers is a beginning farmer with 10 or fewer years of experience, and they're an, an average age of uh, just over 46 years old. Um, what does that tell you about the future of, of farming? Well, it's certainly there's a lot of interest still out there, right, um, in, in agriculture. Even though uh, commodity prices aren't aren't uh, aren't terribly good, uh, it's it's nice to see 
strong numbers and in, in interest. Um, yeah, the average overall age of farmers is 57 and a half. So when you say that those new and beginning farmers have an average age of 46 and those young producers are uh, less than 30, uh, that's, that's certainly uh, helpful to, to know that, uh, that there's a, a pretty significant cadre of, of farmers out there who are, who are still interested in, in the pursuit of agriculture, even though uh, it's not bringing the returns that it was just a few years ago. Um, this is a, those questions about new and beginning producers and, and young producers are new to the 2017 census, uh, which is so it's good to know what those numbers are. Uh, we'll have to wait until 2022 20, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> for that next survey to see sort of directionally. Uh, but um, we're certainly happy to see those questions being placed on the census so that uh, that we can slice and dice that information a little bit and and really know whether or not. Um, we're having an increase in the number of, of young producers and, and new producers coming into the industry uh, or, or not. So uh, certainly positive data uh, and looking forward to seeing how that tracks over time. Well, and, too, and it should be pointed out that there is a distinction between producers and the decision makers on the farm and the way that things are classified now. There, there may be a handful of uh, producers, but, but only one sole decision maker. So I guess that kind of muddies the water a little bit in there. It does, but you know, I think it's um, this last census with the with the inclusion of multiple uh, decision makers and and primary producers. Um, I, I think it was a much clearer idea of what's going on on the ground. Uh, you know, you looked at previous census and they would say, oh, you know, there's a pretty small percentage uh, of farmers are women. A pretty small percentage of farmers are are young or are new, um, and there's a pretty small percentage of uh, producers who are uh, minorities. And now with the, the way the question's being asked, um, I think we're getting a lot more detail uh, and useful detail that is going to allow us to have um, the, the data that's coming back on farms to much more um, accurately reflect what we know to be the situation on the ground. So, uh, you know, there was a 26% increase in the number of uh, female producers this survey can compare to last. That seems unlikely to us that, um, you know, you had over uh, 300,000 women join farming. Mm-hmm. I think probably they just weren't counted before. Yeah. So um, that'll give us a lot clearer idea of, of who's actually involved uh, rather than just the person filling out the survey. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, though, a lot of people have hung their hat on that number because uh, that, that took from uh, uh, just uh, under a million uh, women in the 2012 census to, to 1.2, a little over 1.2 million in this census. Um, is, is that cause for celebration? Well, you know, it's, as you said, it, it muddies it. it those numbers are pretty tough to compare, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact that... Um, uh, female producers are being counted, and their their roles on the farm are uh, are being uh, maybe more acknowledged or viewed by the census. Is certainly uh, uh, news for for celebration, and you know, making sure that those outside of agriculture realize that we're you know a, a little bit more multifaceted than than they thought, um, and that now we have more data that that actually reflects uh, what we know to be true. Mm-hmm. 
And you had mentioned uh, minority farmers as well, uh, taking a look at uh, uh, African-American, Hispanic, Asian, and Native American, all saw upticks between the 2012 and 2017 census. Is there anything that uh, that you could attribute that to? Well, you know, um, probably that decision-maker uh, portion uh, made, a, made a significant difference. And then that inclusion, uh, or excuse me, that growth in the small um, – the small farms uh, where folks are joining agriculture is, is very much a, uh, a thing that you would associate with uh, those new producers. And um, whether those uh, producers are African-American or Native American, uh, Caucasian, whomever, uh, that uh, small is a, is a much easier entry point than taking on a thousand-head uh, dairy right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Something that, that is maybe a little bit more interesting in that space that we do have data on is is looking at things like organic sales, looking at um, greenhouse tomatoes, um, things where those areas of agriculture where um, a smaller geographic footprint isn't necessarily going to hinder you from being able to, to make a full-time living. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look at that, um, We've seen a 26% increase in the number of greenhouse tomato farms, which is pretty, you know, pretty sizable for any crop. You look at organic produce sales, and that was up. The number of farms was up 27% between the two census, and by value, it was up 133%. So, looking at pretty sizable gains, and and maybe those portions of agriculture where being close to a consumer uh, and uh, not having uh, is a benefit and, and not having a large parcel of land isn't necessarily a hindrance to you. Um, so that's, that seems to, to track uh, pretty closely there with uh, additional uh, entrance in the one to nine acres and then uh, additional um, uh, maybe minority participants in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And this may be going out on a limb, but do you see more of that trend continuing going forward, more of a kind of just-in-time, uh, close to, uh, to to your customer's approach to farming? I, I mean, especially in those, uh, those products that consumers are uh, consuming directly, um, absolutely. Uh, it's... Um, you know, all I have to go to do is go to the grocery store and and take a look, and you're seeing a lot more uh, signs that say, you know, this product is from, you know, uh, and here in D.C. we'll see stuff that, oh, this is from, uh, you know, a farm in Virginia just 50 miles away, and you know, they're even putting those mile markers on there, and they're putting uh, photos of of the farmer themselves that, that grew the product. So, you know, as, as folks are in the millennial generation led, leading the way as they're wanting to know more about where their food's coming from and all of this uh, and wanting to be more connected, uh, that seems to be a long-term uh, trend, not just one that was a, a flash in the pan. Mm-hmm. So now that you've had some time to, to really uh, delve into this data and look at some of the reports that are out there, what has jumped off the page at you that might not be being reported uh, or at least reported as much as it should be? Sure. Well, you know, the one thing that that, ju- that really stood out to us, and we're going to make sure folks report on it, is the um, there's a table in the in the census um, where it tracked land use practices uh, by farm, and 
when you look in there and, and take a look at um, tillage practices, uh, there's some really interesting data. So, um, you know, if you USDA categorizes it in three different ways, you know, conventional, traditional tillage uh, is one category, and then uh, conservation tillage uh, practices that it doesn't include no-till. Um, as the second category. And the third is uh, cropland on which no-till practices were used. So, you know, kind of the, the um, arc of, uh, of tillage there. When you looked at the 2012 census, uh, no-till um, uh, was, the, was sort of the medium category, but the largest share of all cropland was still being, uh, was tilled under, a, you know, a conventional tillage method. Flip that to 2017, and uh, no-till is by far the largest uh, share of cropland uh, uh, by tillage practice, um, followed by that conservation type of tillage. And then in last place, uh, that conventional tillage. So uh, we're really encouraged uh, to see that, to see that you know no-till acreage went up by 8%. Uh, conservation went up by um like 28 uh, percent, and you saw almost a, a quarter fewer acres being uh, using that conventional tillage method. Um, and you know, not to say that the tillage is is, uh, is a bad thing, but we know that, uh, and because sometimes it's it's necessary. But uh, we also know that, of course, uh, tillage practices can can lead to some some things uh, like soil loss. Um, when when used back to back to back, and so it's really encouraging to see those conservation efforts uh, playing out across the landscape. Well, that's excellent, definite food for thought there. And Veronica Nye with the American Farm Bureau Federation, we sure do appreciate you taking the time to break all this down for us. There's, there's just such an immense amount uh, of data here, and uh, as, as we continue to uh, to dig into it and, and find nuggets here, at, at, at some point we would love to have you back on to discuss that and uh, and just where we go from here with it all. Yeah, absolutely. There's. Uh, it's a nerd's delight to be sure. Uh, all, all of the the data, and uh, it'll be the the topic of conversation for quite some time. And. Um love to love to discuss it more well we've got about four and a half years to kick it around before we get bored with it yeah, and then right. eagerly await <laughs> the next one so it'll be coming that's up right. and uh, if anybody listening wants to uh, uh, to join us in digging in on that www.nass.usda.gov slash ag census so you can check that out yourself uh, there's plenty of uh, plenty of easy reading there for you so uh, <laughs> again veronica thank you so much and uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Back on Fast Line Fast Track, and it's my pleasure to welcome in Joel Basinger, who is the Product Marketing Manager for Application Equipment for John Deere. And this has been a, a big week for John Deere with the introduction of the new 1,600-gallon R4060 and updated R4045 sprayers for 2020. Both of them feature the all-wheel command drive for more power to the ground and better fuel efficiency. And, Joel, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. I appreciate it, Brent. It's great to be here. Yes, it's been a great week for uh, John Deere and just introducing some new technology for our producers and just uh, hoping to get them into the field sooner and, and get, get, you know, get some of these issues we're having with tight 
uh, application windows, uh, just ha- helping them out with those is- is situations. Uh-huh. Now, for those who aren't familiar, Command Drive is a new hydrostatic all-wheel drive powertrain that transfers more power to the ground while offering improved traction, fuel efficiency, and a quieter ride for the operator. That's correct, Brent. Uh, basically, it's a single hydrostat system, so we're driving all four wheels with a single hydrostat. So if one of those wheels starts to slip, you know, you're losing traction in mud or maybe on a hill, would take the hydraulic oil from that wheel, run it to the other three wheels, so they improve traction, slows that wheel that's spinning down, spinning slows it down a little bit to try to improve traction, so we can uh, maintain a consistent application, and then as soon as we get traction again, keep going. So it's a yeah, it's a great new system. It's available on the R4045 and the R4060. Again, helping customers get through those tight uh, application windows. So one of the things that I find fascinating here is when you look at some of the creature comforts of this, one of them is a quieter ride, which is really important when you're spending long days in the field. It really is. Uh, most of our customers are probably familiar with the IVT transmissions in our tractors. This is a similar system with the command drive in our, our 4045 and R4060. It allows the customer and the machine to manage our RPMs to run at the right uh, spot so they're making that application, but they're lowering the RPM, so we're improving our efficiency, also lowering some of those uh, in-cab engine noise that you might hear. So it's going to give them a better uh, overall experience. There's also an option where if they go into neutral and they're just idling, it'll actually bring the RPMs down to just a low idle 800 again increasing that overall fuel efficiency. So I think it's going to be a feature that customers are really going to appreciate. Well, and I'll tell you, Joe, why I like that is uh, that that means a quieter cab uh, gives more of an opportunity for the folks in there uh, to be able to download FastLine Fast Track and uh, listen to it as they as they go along down the road. Yes, I would encourage everyone to take an opportunity to, to download that podcast. It's a great idea. So as long as they can hear and they can do that, and I would imagine there's uh, pr- probably a pretty boss little stereo system in that thing as well. Yes, great options for stereos, uh, you know, Bluetooth and ability to listen to podcasts, you know, connecting up with aux ports. There's some, some great fun, uh, features there with that also. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't want you to get away without uh, talking a bit about auto track vision and also RoSense. These are optional technologies that help keep the sprayers tracking accurately through the fields uh, during the growing season. That's correct. These two options, uh, features that we have on our sprayers, allow customers to, if, maybe if uh, they're custom applicators or you know, they don't have great uh, A-B lines for when they planted. These features aren't re- don't require it. They can actually either look at the crop and auto track or actually as a mechanical feelers when your, co- or your corn crop gets up a certain height where it can uh, adjust on the go as they're going through the field. So it's a great option for our customers. And we should also mention that all model year 2020 sprayers now come standard with an expanded precision ag intelligence package. That's pretty exciting. It really is, Brent. Uh, what it's going to allow our customers to do is every pass they're making, they're creating data. You know, these machines have so much technology on them, you know, exact apply, the different rates they're putting out. So they can use that data with their third-party advisors on their own farm, and they can wirelessly transmit all of that data to the cloud, and then their third-party uh, advisors can get all that data. It's a completely secure environment. There's no issues there, but it allows them to use that data so they can make better decisions on their farm. Now where they're going to have five years of that in the machine as a base uh, 
you know, that's going to come with the machine. No issues there, nothing they're going to have to pay for. They'll just set it up with their dealer, set it up with their third-party advisors, and then just seamless flow of that data. Mm-hmm. And, and for folks who aren't familiar, he mentioned Exact Apply, and that's a great nozzle control technology that gives operators the ability to be able to maintain a consistent droplet size and pattern at different speeds across the entire width of the boom, which is really important when you're trying to keep your, your input costs in check and uh, make sure that coverage is uh, maximum. That's right. You know, with all the issues we were seeing with some uh, resistance to weeds, we want to make sure we're getting the correct rate at the correct spot and keeping it there. And that's one thing that ExactoPlot can really provide for our customers. We'll maintain that uh, nozzle pattern, maintain that droplet size, even in turns as they're headed, heading in and out of the headlands. Just a technology we really want to make sure we're focusing on, make sure customers are getting out to see it. Another thing I'd encourage them is most, a lot of our dealers are ordering demo machines with ExactoPlot. Call them up, see uh, when they might get a schedule a demo with their local dealer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it bears mentioning, too, that the R4060 has a 1,600-gallon tank and 120-foot or 132-foot carbon fiber spray boom that can cover 33% more acres between fills than the R4045, which has 1,200-gallon tank. So that's uh, some pretty big coverage. Right. We're, we're, we're covering a lot of acres in a day with the, the R4060 and that 132-foot boom. So just, again, increasing our customer productivity, getting into those tight windows, overall just doing a better job, getting our chemicals, getting our fertilizer out. So if folks want to know more about these sprayers, uh, where can they go to check them out? So two great options would be uh, go to johndeer.com or go check out their uh, local dealer. They'll have all this information. We're going to have some great uh, specials running on these machines starting in June. So I encourage everybody to go out and visit their local dealer. Again, Joel Basinger, Product Marketing Manager for Application Equipment with John Deere. I appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. Thanks, Brent. It's been great. And now we take you back to the legendary Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in downtown Nashville, Tennessee, where we catch up with singer-songwriter Marty Brown, whose first studio album in 25 years, American Highway, will be released May 17th. Marty has written hits for some of country's brightest stars, and he's had his own success as a performer. We're thrilled to be able to catch up with Marty as he prepares for a busy summer of touring and appearances to support the new album. Back at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm super excited about this week's guest. You might remember him from America's Got Talent, where his wife got him to unwittingly audition, and he blew the judges away. But people who really know country music know that he was no novice when he got there. Marty's had four studio albums and has been a songwriting force in Nashville for more than two decades. He's written songs for some of country music's biggest hit makers. You might remember, I'm from the country and I like it that way which was a big old hit for Tracy Bird. He's also written for Brooks and Dunn, Trace Adkins, and William Michael Morgan, among others. Marty Brown, welcome to Fast Line, Fast Track. <laughs> well, it's good to be here, man. It really is. Thank you. In Ernest Tubb Record Shop. So you've been kicking around Nashville for quite some time, living just up the road in Franklin, Kentucky. You've written tons of great songs, but something cool, you're getting ready to release your first studio album in 25 years, American Highway on Plowboy Records, which is scheduled to come out May 17th. That's coming out May 17th, and uh, uh, like I said, the single uh, is called Umbrella Lovers. Uh, you can, uh, it's a download world now. I've, since I was on America's Got Talent, I'm having to learn all these, I'm kind of like a bunch of old 
good old boys and good old girls I'm having to learn a lot of new terms like download yeah, yeah. Uh, Instagram Pistagram and uh, uh, but you can uh, download Umbrella Lovers uh, uh, you know all over the world right now it's a beautiful song I wrote uh, uh, about me and my wife we were up in New York City mm-hmm. and uh, we, I, I, I write about this couple we just walk around New York City and all the big buildings and everything and uh-huh. uh, but we were we had all this stuff going on around us but we were oblivious because uh, as everybody's seen America's Got Talent they know I love my wife and uh-huh. uh, um, so it's just a great song it's got a real good feel good groove uh, it's got a windshield I'll be playing it here in a little bit but it's got a windshield wiper groove uh, I didn't notice that when I wrote it I noticed that after I recorded it and I got the final mix for the record and I uh, had a, about a 30 minute drive to go to Franklin Kentucky where I live mm-hmm. well I got the mix and I put it in my truck it was just being by myself and I stuck the TC the CD of the mix in and uh I noticed it had that good groove, so there was nobody else but me in that truck, mm-hmm. and so I took my windshield wipers, then delay the delay on them, and I set them to where they would go exactly uh, to the car. And I so I get excited, you know, uh, when I hear my songs and they've been recorded. So picture me going down I sixty five with umbrella lovers cranked up with the windshield wipers set in time there you go now that sounds like <laughs> and it wasn't raining either so it sounds like you got the concept for the video right there <laughs> I had to stop off at AutoZone and get me a new set of wiper blades <laughs> yeah. so take us back to the beginning how did you get to Nashville and where did this passion for country music come from well it come from my mom and my daddy that's an easy question to answer my mom and my dad um I was with my mom yesterday, and we were singing and playing on my back porch. Oh, wow. uh, well, coming up, uh, my mom uh, and my dad, they sang a lot of Loretta Lynn, yeah. uh, Johnny Cash, and Hank Williams, wow. Patsy Cline. Uh, I remember uh, I was doing an interview on Nashville Now, and I guess Johnny Cash was watching it over in Hawaii when he was oh, wow. still living and uh, I, they had, Ralph Emery asked me that same question you asked me and uh, I said well my influences uh, were Johnny Cash uh, but I didn't hear Johnny Cash doing Johnny Cash mm-hmm. and he said well who'd you hear? I was like well, I heard my daddy singing Johnny we didn't have a lot of money to buy records back in them days so I heard my mom and my daddy wow. singing Johnny Cash and uh, Kitty Wells and all that and Johnny must have heard that because he wrote me a letter you know and uh, and uh, I still have it to this day. Oh, wow. A personal letter from Johnny Cash. And it's got the house of cash up at the top of it. And so little things like that uh, okay. that I hold on in, to in my career. What was that day like when you went to the mailbox and pulled that out? Well, actually, I was on the road uh-huh. when I got when I got the letter. My mama, I was I, I was young. I was about 20-something years uh-huh. old. And I was living with my mom there. And and my dad, who's the number one Johnny Cash fan, uh, well, he, he didn't go to the mailbox, but my mom did. Uh-huh. And it had, um, it, it still got the envelope, got the Johnny Cash and the House of Cash, and she's bringing in, she brought it in, and uh, we got a letter from Johnny Cash, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, so they called me, I was out on the road, and uh, they called me on the road and said, uh, you got a letter here uh, from uh, Johnny Cash. And I was like, oh, really? So, <laughs> so she kept it for me. And uh, I, as a matter of fact, it's still at Mama's house. I'll get it someday in about 100 years, I hope. <laughs> so as you started to make a career for yourself and grab a guitar, did you start writing right away? Well, actually, I was nine years old. Like I said, my mom and my dad, they played around the house. And mm-hmm. uh, Dad, I'd go get the clothes. They would have these little sing-alongs at the house, you know. Wow. And, uh, well, 
I'd go get the clothes basket. I'd, I'd get it and turn it upside. I was a little bitty fella and turn it upside down on my head and look through the cracks that my daddy and my mama singing. And uh-huh. uh, you know, so that's where I got the inspiration. Uh, to, to, I wanted to be like daddy I wanted to learn how to play that guitar and so he showed me a chord eventually and showed me the chord of D thank you daddy and that kind of sparked me taking off And I, but I didn't start writing songs till I was about 12 okay uh, and I, uh, I used to cut tobacco. You ever cut any tobacco? I have not. Unhaved, not tobacco. <laughs> I, uh, well, I've done it. I'd take my guitar. Uh, after he showed me that first chord of D, well, the match was struck. Uh-huh. You know, I just took, I carried my guitar everywhere. I took it uh, to the tobacco patch. Uh, I bagged groceries for a while. Uh, I used to write songs on, back then it was, you guys remember it was brown paper bags, you know, and I'd write songs on those brown paper bags, and and they would be uh, calling, you know, I'd be out, I'd be out in the parking lot serenading the customers. I said, Marty Brown, come up front, please. I got an order to sign, and I was out there serenading to the customers. Awesome. And so that's how I started writing the songs. You know, I started singing. Uh, then I got in a couple of talent shows. Uh-huh. Uh, like typically, the typically singer would do. Uh, but then I got tired of, uh, well, everybody was telling me, man, you're pretty good. Y'all be in Nashville. Uh-huh. You know, well, when your cousin's telling you that and your mama and everybody else, you're like, well, maybe they're just telling me that because they love me. Yeah. So maybe I, they just want to get rid of you. <laughs> yeah. I used to record it at home in the bathroom, too. They'd be my brothers and sisters. <laughs> I had uh, th- three sisters and two brothers, and my studio was in the bathroom. That's why I recorded it. And I'd be hearing... And they'd interrupt my recording, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm in the middle of a chorus, you know, and I'm like, we got to go. <laughs> so I did it all my teens, uh, and then I turned, uh, when I got 16, I got my license. Well, then I, that way my first trip to Nashville, Tennessee. I was so scared. I'd never been anywhere before. Uh, the semi-trucks coming down Ridgetop were flying around me, and I was like probably doing 30 mile an hour because I was scared, you know. Uh, uh, but since then, I've made, i uh, shoot, thousands of trips to Nashville now to record since I've been writing the hit songs and uh-huh. uh, I wrote uh, that I'm from the country and I like it that way uh, that's been our biggest song uh-huh. uh, it, like I said it built my house and it, it's taken care of me that song come out in 1998 uh-huh. and, and I still get the check every uh-huh. three months and thank God I thank God for every one of them uh, I wrote that song uh, I remember I had made the Rolling Stone magazine mm-hmm. And I went out and bought 20 copies of it. Uh-huh. And I brought it to Mama. I said, Mommy, your baby boy's in the Rolling Stone. What do you think about that? And we all got a copy of it, and we turned to the page where I was at and uh, had on a red shirt. Uh, I got on a red shirt today. But I had on a red shirt, and uh, they reviewed my album. Uh, but they said, he's too, but at the end of it, they gave me five stars. Wow. But at the end, they said he's too country for country. <laughs> I said, Mama, what's that? I'm from the country, and I like it that way. Yeah. She said, you need to write that. Wow. So so that's how I'm from the country. I wrote it, and it went to number one. And now you know the rest of the story. Well, exactly. they said I was too country for country, but I got back at them some way. So yeah. they took it all the way to number one. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I just had a pat love and a passion of writing songs, and I wrote all the songs on my new album uh, on Plowboy Records. Uh, it's called the album's called uh, American Highway. Uh-huh. I'll be singing that one for you in a little bit. And that's something I want to come back to. You know, you you were talking about two country for country. Back in the late 90s, early 2000s, radio really changed and kind of lost a taste for the kind of music that you were doing. But now in this digital age, you know, you were talking about trying to catch up with the digital age. You've got a brand new audience, a brand new
brand new platform. You can take it directly to them and not have to worry about the politics of radio. When I was on America's Got Talent, mm -hmm. you know, my wife, she tricked me and signed me up for that. Uh, I noticed that what it did, a lot of the older fans, they're like, wait, we know him. I remember him. Yeah, yeah. But, but there were some of them didn't know who I was. Yeah. You know. I don't know if, uh, I've got rap artists that follow me. Wow. Thanks to America's Got Talent. It's got a huge audience, and there's a lot of musical influences, and there's a lot of uh, acts on that show. I mean, there's acrobats, and I've got acrobats that follow me, you know, and, they're, and uh, acrobats, uh, jugglers, sword swallowers, and uh, <laughs> rappers. But I think it's just because they, I am a little bit different. So again, the new album, American Highway, comes out May 17th. If people want to know more about that or follow your career, they can go to MartyBrownMusic.com. Also, you're on all the social media platforms. Oh, yeah. People can follow uh, you. I'm having, like I said, I'm having to learn all them new terms. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, my Facebook page has got thousands of people uh, on it. Uh, and I think, well, I ought to give this over 100 some odd thousand between the Twitter and all that. And, and I'd just like to thank everybody for following me, you know, and uh, invite everybody to get on and hop on there, man. Yeah. Just hit the like button and follow along and see what's going on with me. Well, as I was looking at your website, you've got the Country Boy Tour coming up this summer. Man, it looks like you're staying busy this summer. Yes, I'm, I'm playing all over. And thanks to Plowboy Records and this new record, uh, American Highway. And I'd also like to publicly thank my wife mm -hmm. because she's behind. She's here. There she is. Uh, and, uh, she's behind everything. She's uh, um, behind, she just really great at what she does. And we love each other. And when I went on in America's Got Talent, uh, you know, they didn't have to write no treatment for me and her. It was just a man and a woman, and, you know, she had tricked me, and uh, she gave me a velvet push out on that, you know, million-dollar stage, you know. And the next thing I know, they sent us emails and plane tickets to go to uh, 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 Las Vegas, then we went to Hollywood, and we went to New York and San Antonio, Texas. We had a lot of fun, didn't we? Yeah, she's in the audience, so That's you probably right. can't see her, but she said yes. And uh, but uh, we've we've had a lot of fun. And uh, but with the new record, uh, American Highway, uh, the new single uh, that you can download now, uh, right now, that, that amazes me. You don't gotta get in your car and drive to a record store or anything. Oh no, they would appreciate it. Yeah, now, now you want to get the real stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, we're in this Ernest Tubb record shop here. You know, you can get the real stuff, and yeah. you can go back and get like uh, Patsy Klein and things like that. Uh, you just look at the names on these racks. I remember when my very first records come out uh, on, on MCA Records, uh, I'd be in town here and I'd come down here to Ernest Tubb Record Shops and, uh, and I'd find my, it's something to find your name, oh, wow. you know, uh, on the, those were older records. Yeah. But to look, search and find your name in the record shop and boom, there it is, you know. And songs that you had written when you were like, 15 and 16 but they've got a, a great band behind them and I'd always dream you know what um, God is like my invisible friend he really is he's made every dream I've ever dream come true mm -hmm. and I think you, I was talking about my daddy's drive mm -hmm. well uh, that that's what gave me the drive is I didn't I, I first I started writing these songs to they made me happy yeah you know when I was 12 years old uh, they made me happy they made me feel good and then there was a way of me expressing myself and uh, but then uh, 
John Denver was a big inspiration to me too. Uh, mm. uh, I loved John Denver's songs, uh, and uh, I got to do a show with him too oh, wow. uh, before he died. And uh, I, I, that was one of my highlights. Like my Johnny Cash letter, uh-huh. that was a big highlight for yes. me. Uh, getting to open up for John Denver, mm. my hero, that was a big highlight for me. Mm. Uh, I'd always dreamed of doing a show with uh, another one of my heroes, Hank Williams Sr. Mm. Of course, that couldn't happen. But I did get to tour with his son, Hank Williams Jr. So that was wow. great. So uh, those were all those dreams that I always that I dreamed of. That God, it was like, okay, yeah, you dreamed it, it can happen. So uh, that's what gave me my drive. Uh, when I write those songs, I didn't want to turn like 60 years old and see all this. This see a, a drawer full of songs and thought, well, what if I'd only tried, you know? Yeah. So that gave me the drive to, because I had a message to get out and a talent that I wanted to to share. And so that's what gave me my drive to get down here to Nashville when I was 16. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm still doing it, you know. Uh, uh, that the, the new record, uh, American Highway, and that record, Umbrella Lovers, I call it, I guess it'll, I call it my windshield wiper song. Uh-huh. But when I listen to those records, it's kind of like, uh, you see your songs come to life. When I was listening to that album on the way back to Kentucky, when I first got the first copy, uh-huh. um, it's like seeing your children being born. Yeah. Each one, you know, uh, and and putting that uh, putting that first little dress on your new new baby girl. Mm-hmm. See it dressed up, you know, or putting a pair of overalls on your little. That's the, that's the only way I know to describe when you hear your record for the first time. If you're a songwriter or a singer, yeah. it's like dressing up your children wow. for Sunday church. That's a, that's a great way to put yeah. it. Uh, and I think a lot of the people are like me. They're just looking for something that's real. Yeah. Something that they can sink their teeth into and sit down in like a big old comfortable easy chair and say, man, I like that and turn turn the volume up. Yeah. Well, and that's the reason why we wanted you on here because uh, we have a passion for real, true country music. You. you know, the kind you find here at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop and the kind that you play. And uh, so uh, I'm going to let you get set up here, man. I, and I just can't thank you enough for being here. Well, I'd like to publicly thank uh, Ernest Tubb Record Shop for uh, letting us come down here and set up and sing a few songs for the folks And because there's a stream of people always coming through here all day long. There's yeah. a stream of people and they want to go back. Some people they come in, they come in from all over. You know, I saw a picture up there with Ringo Starr. Yeah. You know, he's on his peace sign up, you know, he's been in here. But it's just a place like I said earlier, people are looking for something that's real and something that they can hey yeah I remember that yeah. or I know that you know whether it be old or young but uh, the, the people that's one thing in my career the people will let you know yeah. what you can whether they like it or not the fans will yeah and uh, so well all these years later you're still hanging around so that's right that's a good sign yes and I appreciate y'all letting me hang on uh, God bless you man we appreciate it well, I'm going to let you get set up here uh-huh. and then uh, we'll let you play a few for the folks thank you buddy this is my hit song, maybe a lot of biscuits and gravy, thank God.
were the true country sounds of Marty Brown. And we want to thank Marty for taking the time to stop down and join us at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop. We want to thank you for joining us on this episode of Fast Line, Fast Track. Next episode, episode 11, will be our Memorial Day episode. We'll honor those who have sacrificed their lives in service of our country, and we'll spend some time with singer-songwriter J.T. Cooper. He was a member of the 10th Mountain Division, who was among the first to answer the call when his fellow soldiers were shot down over Mogadishu, Somalia in 1993. That harrowing experience was the basis for the movie Black Hawk Down. He'll discuss that as well as his work with Operation Song, which helps returning service members process their feelings through songwriting. You won't want to miss a moment of this special episode, so stop back by and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at brent.adams at fastline.com.
負け。